Welcome to Shelf Life from Bristol Libraries. I'm Catherine. I'm Paul. And I'm Sean. This is a podcast about libraries, books and people. What are people taking out of the modern public library and what are they giving back? Who's keeping the shelves and spaces between them vibrant and full of life? Plus, we'll be delving into news about books, authors and events across Bristol's 27 libraries. So if you're interested in books or in people, lend us your ears. We hope you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life. All right, so welcome everyone. Welcome to this episode of Shelf Life. So this is our first episode of season two. And yeah, it is really great to be back. It actually feels like only five minutes has gone by since we finished season one, but we have had a whole month off for the summer. So it is really nice to be back. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Paul and Sean from Bristol Libraries. Hello. Hello. And also we are joined today um, by... Joe Melia, who is the books editor for Bristol 24-7 and one of the founding members and directors of the Bristol Short Story Prize, which I think very soon announces its 2020 winner. Um, so Ooh. Joe, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank, thanks for the invite. Well, it's really good to have you. I think we're really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about what you do as a books editor and then also about the Bristol Short Story Prize. But the way we normally kick off these episodes of the podcast is by talking a little bit about books and about what we've all been reading lately. So I don't know who wants to go first. What has everyone been reading lately? Uh, so I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks on BorrowBox. So BorrowBox is this app where you can listen to free library audiobooks and it's amazing. It's like one of my favourite things since lockdown started has been BorrowBox. So I've just picked out three highlights I want to talk about. One is a memoir called Odd Girl Out by Laura James. Laura was diagnosed with autism at the age of 45 and in this book she shares what it was like processing that diagnosis. So this includes looking back on her childhood and making sense of why she always stood out and how she was treated and right up until her relationships with her own sort of growing up children and her husband. And she also talks about how most representations of autism are in boys and young men, like say the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, things like that, and how a lot of girls and women go undiagnosed. And so it was kind of quite refreshing and interesting to hear her story. And ultimately it was quite uplifting as she gained like more ownership of her identity and how, how that played out in, in her relationships and things. So that was a good read. The second one I want to talk about is a history book, uh, Lenny Henry's Raising the Bar. Well, actually, it's not really a book, it's a radio show, but it's on BorrowBox along with the audiobooks. So it's got like soundtrack and interviews and all of that. And he explores the history of black British theatre and TV and film over the last hundred years. So there's loads of stuff I didn't know. It goes from like the first black person playing Othello to like blackface still being on primetime TV in the 70s and to breakthrough moments in the 80s and 90s and new wave of black British playwrights. So that's like really interesting, a surprising amount of things I didn't know there. So I'd highly recommend that. And my third one is Mudlarking by Lara Maiklem. So this is Lara guides us on a journey along the tidal banks of the Thames, picking up objects in the mud from like clay pipes to pocket sundials. 
and looks at the social history of the uh, kind of revealed by the objects that she finds, as well as telling us about the like subcultures um, among the mudlarkers. And like the pleasure that she gets from doing this, like really shines through. So it's a lovely read. It's really, it's really fascinating in terms of the history and some of the ecology and, and so on. And quite a relaxing read as well. So that, that was a, uh, a lovely one to read. Yeah, so that's me. Who would like to go next? Joe, would you like to go next? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I've got several things on the go at the moment. A book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, by two eminent psychologists, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. It's a very fascinating, interesting and very relevant book about how we humans are very reluctant to admit when we've made mistakes and even when they are they are obvious and clear, we try and shift responsibility or double down on the fact that it's not a mistake, it's actually the opposite of a mistake. There's a lot of politics in there, but also very interesting ideas about how we are very reluctant to change our minds on opinions and beliefs that we have, even when the evidence is overwhelmingly against us. But it's really fascinating, especially when you think, if you spend any time on social media, especially Twitter, the endless spats that happen on there with I don't know if people expect others to change their minds, but after reading this book, I think most people would probably give up. Going back to the predictors of the end of the world, when the end of the world doesn't happen, the leaders of the cults use it to say that God, their God, whichever God it was who stopped the end of the world, only did that because of the strength of the cult's belief in that God. So they have, in fact save the world from ending because of their belief. And I'd never really looked at it that way, but it's very, very, very interesting book. I just want to say that sounds totally fascinating, actually. It is. How difficult it is for people to change their minds. Yeah. And I'm reading a novel by Lauren Wilkinson, which is called American Spy, uh, originally published in America, but brought out over here by Dialogue Books, which is about a black woman in the FBI and who hopes to join the CIA, who's very much an outsider and but very ambitious and works 10 times as hard as everyone else to make progress and is asked to infiltrate the government of Burkina Faso when the leader comes over to speak at the UN. And it's very, very well written, really interesting history lesson on the 60s, 70s, 80s in America and on race and identity. And I've also just finished Emily Bullock's new novel called Inside the Beautiful Inside. Emily won our Bristol Short Story Prize in 2011, and this is her second novel, which is a really intense reading experience. It's about an inmate of Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane in the 19th century and what goes on in his head. And it's based on the story of James Norris, who was a Marine and was involved in the mutiny on the bounty, apparently. His treatment is appalling, but it's, it's really incredibly written and you're, you're with him all the way through. And it's, yeah, it's an amazing read. But mostly I've been reading the 20 stories that are on the shortlist for the Bristol Short Story Prize because we've been getting the anthology ready. Mm-hmm. And it went off to the printer yesterday, in fact. Oh, how exciting. Hopefully we've, we've spotted all the typos, etc. And uh, 
<laughs> it's always a nerve-wracking moment when that happens. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, that must have um, that must have kept you busy, though. Having yeah, to- yeah. In between announcing the shortlist and getting the book off to the printer, it's only about five or six weeks, so that's not quite a tight turnaround then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catherine, what have you been reading? So I haven't been reading a huge amount lately, but something that I have just read and really, really enjoyed. It sounds a little bit similar to that first book that Joe was talking about. But so this one is called How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. And it's by Elif Shafak. And it's only a little book. It's only, it's sort of like a fairly short essay. But Elif Shafak is a novelist and she is just a wonderful writer. I read one of her books earlier this year called The 40 Rules of Love and just loved it. It was just really brilliant descriptive fiction, historical fiction, that one. So she is a writer. She writes in Turkish and English, but she's also a really brilliant public speaker. So she does a lot of literary festivals and events and that kind of thing. And she's a really just amazing advocate for women's rights and LGBTQ plus rights and freedom of speech. Yeah, so she lives in the UK now. She's originally from Turkey. But yeah, so this little essay that she's written, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division, it's very, very current and very topical. And it's her writing in response to the current situation today. So in response to coronavirus, she talks also about the killing of George Floyd and the protests around Black Lives Matter in the US and then globally. Actually, when you read it, it feels like her kind of processing and working through all of these different and identifying lots of different kind of emotions that we're all dealing with collectively. So so sort of how to manage all the anxiety and the anger and then what this situation sort of means in terms of identity and also storytelling. It's, it's always for her, for her as a writer, I think it always comes back to storytelling and the power of collective storytelling and the power of language and words. And it is only just a very brief kind of short essay. It's a little book. I think you can probably read it in about, I think I read it in an afternoon, just a couple of hours. And it's just, it's refreshing. So it's just really nice to read a bit of nonfiction and something that was very kind of topical. So yeah, I'd highly recommend that. But yes, what else have I got? I've got a couple on my pile of books to read. Oh, one of which is another. So it's another novel by Elif Shafak. It's called 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World. So it came out last year, I think. And I think it was shortlisted for the booker. So I am looking forward to that. And I, I think, I need to check this, but I think sort of the concept of the book is that the central character is dying or has died. And then each chapter is a different minute after her death. But it goes through kind of different periods in her life, just bringing back different memories for her, which I think is just a really interesting concept for a book. So I'm quite... Oh, brilliant. I've never heard yeah. of like that. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to it. 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world. So that's what I've sort of got coming up. But yes, Sean, what are you reading then? I have very very recently just started Invisible Women which is by Caroline Criado Perez this is the full title is Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men so naturally I was intrigued I think we've talked about this on the podcast before and I had heard Catherine say something about it being very surprising I think it was and I quite surprisingly when I went to buy this book the person who sold the book to me said oh you're gonna get annoyed (laughs) because um because of how surprising some of the statistics are within the book and already within the first chapter the first chapter is about transport within big cities and how women are more likely to make more than one journey on public transport than men are 
and how men are more likely to go from point A to point B in work, whereas women are more likely to you know, to use the public transport to pick up the groceries and do all this unpaid work that statistically men are less likely to do within a heterosexual relationship. And I've been reading it and it's been frustrating, but also very eye-opening, which I've enjoyed. And the back of the book was really the one which got it for me. It says, imagine a world where your phone is too big for your hand, your doctor prescribes a drug that is wrong for your body, in a car accident, you're 47% more likely to be seriously injured. If any of these sound familiar, chances are you're a woman. I thought, oh God, I've got to read this. I'm glad, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're enjoying it. It's probably not the right word because I guess it, it does make you a bit a bit angry when you read something like that. But I did, I found it really interesting. And I also learned, yeah, it was really eye-opening and I learned a lot, particularly about like the data gap and how a lot of studies are, yeah, take place um, with sort of the male defaults. So a lot of our data and statistics is all relating to men rather than women. But also sometimes the little things like, yeah, like the phone. I always struggle with this. I have to have a really tiny phone. And otherwise, yeah, I I drop my phone all the time. I quite enjoy how it's not too Western centred, which has been really something that I haven't read about before very often. So I'm enjoying that. Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. I think there are loads of really great book recommendations there. If it's all right, Joe, we wanted to ask you a few questions, just a little bit about the Bristol Short Story Prize. So this year is the 13th year of the Bristol Short Story Prize. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of the prize and how it came to be? I was working in Waterstones in the galleries at the time, doing a lot of the buying. So I was in touch with local publishers a lot. They had recently started up a quarterly magazine called Bristol Review of Books and we're looking at ways to keep it ad-free and to raise some funds for it. So based on the Bridport Prize writing competition model, they wanted to start the short story competition. The hope was to get enough entries and entry fee payments to contribute to the running of the magazine. And so that's how it started, basically. We had a very successful first year, but never quite raised enough money to keep the magazine going. It stopped a few years ago, but the guys who, who run it are still hopeful to start it up again but we've just carried on with the short story prize well this will be our 13th as you say it's been great to publish all these writers from all over the world and publish great short stories and help writers on their way to furthering their writing careers. So how does it work? Who can submit work to the prize? And I'd also just like to hear a little bit more about like how how does the whole process work in terms of receiving the submissions and then the long listing process and then the short listing process? Because I, I think that must be quite a lot to running a short story prize like this. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of admin. Going back to your first question, anyone over the age of 16 can enter from anywhere in the world. It's open to published as well as unpublished writers. All we ask is that the stories haven't been published. So we open the competition in the autumn. The closing date's usually around the end of April. And during that time, we're receiving the entries and getting them out to our readers who are fantastic, who do a really brilliant job and are great at spotting excellent stories. All the stories are read anonymously. So our readers don't know anything about the writer who's written the story. They just have the 
the story in front of them. The readers select any they think are really outstanding. They go to two of us to select the long list of 40 stories. I do that with Lou Hersey, who's a children's writer who's been in Bristol for a long time. So we select the 40 long list from the outstanding stories the readers have chosen. Those 40 stories go to our judging panel, who then select the 20 stories for the anthology and the first, second and third prize winners. It's a year-long cycle that we do. It's gone okay so far. We were a bit worried with the lockdown, how that would affect what's happened, but Everyone's been so adaptable and flexible that we've managed to keep everything to the original schedule we set when we opened the competition last October. So that's been really excellent. That's quite impressive if you've managed to keep to that schedule despite touch wood. (laughs) That's brilliant. And so who are the judges for this year's competition? We have... Annalisa McIntosh, who lives in Bristol, who's an award-winning writer who's had two novels published, well, actually a short story collection followed by a novel and has a third book coming out in October, but only in America at the moment, which seems crazy. And we have Tom Robinson, the manager of Foils in Cabot Circus, Charmaine Lovegrove, the head of the Great Dialogue Books. Mm, She's great. Yes. Yeah, I actually went to a webinar with her the other day and like she was brilliant. And and yeah, we've talked about dialogue books before on the show. Um, yeah, yeah, I really like yeah. it. Yeah, an amazing human being who has sadly left Bristol recently. So. And Billy Kahora, who is a fantastic writer and lecturer at Bristol University and is along with Mimi Thebo setting up a new creative writing MA at the university, which they're hoping to start this autumn. Oh, fantastic. We're very lucky to have such a brilliant lineup of judges. Mm. Some competitions go for one judge, which I can see why. It makes the admin burden, for instance, a lot lighter. But I think if you have four different readers reading and selecting, then you get a a nice, a good and an interesting array of stories in the book because they will all read the stories differently and, and see different things in them different qualities so in terms of choosing the winners of the prize do you have or, or in normal circumstances do you have kind of a, a meetup a panel meeting where people discuss and then you sort of fight for which story you think should be the winner or do you yeah, find it, i mean sort of how how heated does it get do people generally sort of are they quite unanimous or has there been division how difficult is it to make that decision well going back to the book i was talking about first our panels over the years have been very amazing actually they've all listened to each other's opinions and readings of the stories and do change their minds in fact on what the story can do and how effective it is no one's ever stormed out (laughs) not so far that's a good sign. And this this year we did it on Zoom, of course. It was quite an interesting experience to Zoom for that particular aspect of the competition because it did feel a little bit different. I'm, I'm sure the same conclusion would have, would have been reached, but it just felt slightly... I, know, I can't quite describe it, but not being in the same room and seeing each other, that slightly affected the way it went. But it was still great and still brilliant discussions and great for me to be there i sit in on those meetings but i don't express an opinion because i at that stage i know the identity of the writers so that would perhaps affect how i yeah what i thought about the stories or so joe in your opinion then what does actually make a successful short story no that's a really interesting question and pretty much impossible to answer 
I think. But, and it would be different for every reader, I think, even though they may agree on a particular short story being successful. I think in the, in the world of writing, there's a quest to make it an exact science and to have boxes that you tick to say good, bad, um, successful, unsuccessful. And I, I think it was John Self who tweeted a long time ago when he was talking about books and opinions about books saying, just because you can't see it or haven't read it doesn't mean it's not there. So I, I think what makes a successful story is, I think it's whatever anyone thinks makes a short story successful. You've all read a lot. You know when you come away from a reading experience what effect that has had on you. And I, I always think, going back to Twitter again, Jonathan Coe talked about, I can't remember what book it was he was reading recently, but he said he surfed across the pages to get to the end. And I think any reading experience where you kind of forget that you're reading and you're just consuming like you would a banana milkshake or whatever is your favourite tipple, when you consume something like that, I think that's a successful reading experience. And I think it's impossible almost to quantify that or qualify that by saying with excellent dialogue, with a fantastic beginning, with a wonderful resolution at the end, because you don't even notice when you're reading all those things. They're just, they are just there. You may go back and examine a story to find out what the ingredients were. But then I think if you were to say that to a writer, spell out those ingredients and say, put those in a short story, that would make it successful. They are just opinions. That's a very long-winded way of saying, I haven't got a clue, (laughs) really, what the specifics are to make a short story successful. But I know one when I've read one. I love the idea of surfing pages. That's brilliant. You know the feed, that feeling, don't you? I think it's quite hard to put it into words, isn't it? And I don't know if exactly. there's a word that exists. There might be. But for that feeling of when you have actually lost yourself in a book, it's that self-consciousness or the awareness that you're reading and you're just actually in the story. And um, yeah, it's really hard to put, into, to put into words and to sort of quantify. So, I mean, it's amazing when you read a book or a novel and it has that effect and it has that impact. But I think it's even more difficult to do that in a short story. So in a novel, you've got a lot, obviously you've got a lot more space and you've got a lot more words and pages to sort of achieve Mm. whatever it is that you want to achieve. I mean, I've heard it said before that that short stories are one of the most difficult to get right. Would you agree with that, do you think? I suspect in terms of writing and editing and re-editing to get them as tight and as crunchy as possible, it's often more time consuming to do that in a wholehearted way to a short story. I mean, there's Danielle McLaughlin, who we've published a couple of stories of over the years, and she says that she will regularly do 60 or 70 drafts of a short story before she's happy with it. So that probably, that example probably answers your question. But I, th- I think I think some people do find it more straightforward than others. And there's the legendary quote that is attributed to many writers of the 19th century, Balzac or Maupassant. It basically says, a person who's talking about writing a letter, saying, sorry, this would have been shorter, but I didn't have enough time. I think that is an example of what you're talking about, really. Yeah, but it's sometimes harder to do it in fewer words. Yeah, yeah. What have been some of your favourite short stories that have appeared in the anthologies? Oh, gosh. This is uh, is like choosing a favourite child. Um, (laughs) I 
I like all of them. <laughs> That's a lovely answer. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's really, it is really difficult. There's, I mean, I suppose there's a few that stand out. But, um, I mean, the ones I'm thinking about most are the, are the ones that are coming up this October. We've got, um, got a huge range of stories and, and writers from different parts of the world. And, I mean, that's, the ones that spring to mind from previous anthologies are perhaps the more, the more inventive style-wise or the more powerful content-wise, which is something we talked about a lot in, our, in the judges' meeting this year. They had a really interesting discussion about what they were looking for and the impact that reading the stories had on them. There were stories that were really written amazingly well and sharply and clearly and a really interesting style. But perhaps the subject matter wasn't as memorable as others that were maybe not written so well, but the actual subject matter and what it described were just unforgettable and you couldn't ignore it and it had to go in the anthology because of what it was describing so that people would remember it. I mean, I remember one from, I think it was in our seventh anthology, which is a story in the form of an album review, which is really interesting and works really amazingly well. And we've got one in this year's anthology, which is a dual narrative. So the page is split in in two and there's a left-hand column, right-hand column, two different narrators narrating the same event and it works really brilliantly and I mean all the winning stories we've had I really remember I don't know again that's not a very helpful answer is it (laughs) no I I think think you're right it's like choosing a favorite child perhaps that was a difficult question (laughs) I think it's a very difficult question but it's a good one it's really interesting yeah yeah. yeah. So, oh yeah, I've just got one more question about the short story prize, which is just that. So, for the past few years, the Bristol Short Story Prize ceremony has been held at the Bristol Central Library, and last year's event was wonderful. It was really great to. Oh, it was really great for me to <laughs> to to be there and experience as well, and uh, meet some of the writers, and kind of just be there on the night with the excitement of the announcement of the winner. So, I mean, obviously, it won't be able to take place in the same way this year due to coronavirus and well, I mean currently at the moment the reference room upstairs in Central Library is being used uh, to quarantine books so it's quite oh, is it? yeah it's um it's really interesting yeah we've got crates of books everywhere and it's it's being used as storage so it's yeah it's in quite a different format at the moment but yes so at the moment you know that it doesn't look like we'll be able to hold it in real life in that space this year but I was just wondering if you've got any plans to do it online or to hold a virtual event or do something digitally this year instead we are planning exactly that at the moment to do a a zoom-based event which in the end may enable us to have all the writers who are on the shortlist attending what's going on. Because if we time it right, on the shortlist, there's writers based in America and Canada, Ireland, Kenya and Australia, as well as the UK. So if we time it right, maybe around 2pm in the afternoon, then everyone might be able to make it to uh, be online to have it. So it should enable us to have a really nice event, actually. And the Bristol Festival of Literature, who are running an online festival in October, are going to let us use their supersonic Zoom account, which they have invested in, which is very kind of them. It should be good. And we're really looking forward to it. Brilliant. It's on Saturday, October the 10th. I think we've just got a couple more questions for you. I mean, Sean, I don't know if you wanted to ask... Yeah, so these questions are more about your role as the book editor for Bristol 24-7, which is a magazine in Bristol. 
I was wondering, what does a typical day look like as the Bristol book editor? Well, I haven't been doing that much over the last few months because Bristol 24-7 has suffered along with lots of other publications. A, A typical day, I'm hunting out and searching for new books that are coming out by Bristol writers and preparing interviews for people and people involved in the book world in Bristol and also looking at the events for listings because there's the listings part as well as the features part of the websites mainly the website that I do there's a lot of research a lot of reading and a lot of getting to know what's going on and as you guys know Bristol is full and becoming fuller of writers and a huge amount of activity that's going on in the city so it's it's quite a job to keep on top of everything that's going on but it's very enjoyable and it's great to find that all these people are doing great things in the city actually. So how do you keep up to date with the the best in the upcoming books and authors some of them get in touch some of their publishers get in touch i look at what events the bookshops are hosting because normally based on new books coming out that's a large part of the activity and i've got a very handy twitter list of bristol writers event organizers all that kind of thing so uh, there's various ways to keep on top of it but i think you know well we're probably doing better than just scratching the surface but i think there's a lot that goes on that, that we don't know about but that's that's kind of bristol the city anyway isn't it because people tend to get on with things and not promote it hugely or promote themselves which to some people is a frustration but to others people like that people who are into the work and and that's the dominant factor that was actually i think you've kind of answered this question really i was going to say how would you describe the literary scene in bristol as you say diverse and there's oh, yeah, I mean, a it's, huge amount going on yeah there's a huge amount going on and it's getting bigger all the time i mean there's there's so many writers not just not just fiction writers but non-fiction writers and children's writers yeah lists and lists of them and um and the events that are going on are when i started to do the listings because 24 7 didn't before i joined didn't really have that much of a books and spoken word listing but when i started to do it there was an enormous amount to to publicize and loads of festivals throughout the year i mean i think the main surprise to me was just how much how many poets there are in the city and how much poetry activity was going on. I mean, I knew there was a lot, but I didn't didn't realise quite how big the scene was and how dynamic. And I think that's that's really that's really amazing for a city this size to have such a scene as it does. And the publishers that go along with it, Burning Eye and Moot Press and Hester Glock and the rest of them who are doing who are doing lots of great things. But it is, yeah, I mean, and it's quite interesting when people think about Bristol because it's mainly music and street art, culture-wise, that people would think immediately, instinctively about Bristol. But the literature scene is as lively as those and perhaps more diverse and covers a, a wider range of output as well and what's produced. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. Very exciting. So I've got one last question, but I just wanted to go back. You mentioned, Joe, that you previously worked as a bookseller. And so I sort of was wondering about your, your past life as a bookseller. Did you enjoy working in a bookshop? And what did you kind of learn from from working in the book sales world? Well, quite a lot, actually, I would say, because I was there for a long time. I was four years at the university bookshop on Tyndall Avenue when Waterstones had a shop there. And I was 14 years in the Galleries Bookshop in Broadmead. I learned that the book trade is very conservative with a small C and is very reluctant to change. 
And that I would say that's still the case, though there are examples of that slightly changed. I mean, Charmaine, Lovegrove and Dialogue Books is a classic example and antidote to that. I would say that the other thing I learned is that lots of people are really, really intimidated to go into bookshops because they feel perhaps they are not welcome. I don't know why I think bookshops are really intimidating to a lot of people because of their uh, books sit in the culture in this country and in the West, which is mad because bookshops are cathedrals of stories, basically, and we exist and live by sharing stories with each other. So the idea that some members of the population, a significant chunk of the population, feel that they are not welcome in bookshops is horrendous. And the book trade should be completely ashamed of itself that it has got to this stage and has remained this stage for a long time. I met great people working in those bookshops and it was always, I mean, we, we had loads of events in the galleries but you'd always get the odd customer coming in when they were visiting Bristol or something and double take and there would be Noel Gallagher or Kate Blanchett. And yeah, I mean, it was it was a very interesting time and I think it helped me understand the way that information and stories are shared and owned in this country. I just, I just find that really interesting to hear about your experience working in bookselling. I think I definitely learned a lot and I think I found it a really interesting job in terms of variety because you just never know who's going to come in through the door next. And I think the biggest, actually, the biggest thing that I learned thinking about it is that people read for an enormous variety of reasons and that the book trade does not recognise that enough. A huge number of reasons, whether to escape, to relax, just to be entertained, or to grow intellectually, or to look really cool to a prospective partner, or for whatever reason, people select books or like to read. There are millions and millions, and in the book trade, we don't recognise and cater for that enough. Yeah, as an industry, I think it has been quite slow to change. Yeah, definitely. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been really wonderful to have you here and to hear about the Bristol Short Story Prize and all of your past experience in kind of the Bristol book scene. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Good luck with the online prize ceremony this year. And definitely keep thank us posted. You. Yeah, keep you posted, definitely. All right, I think that's everything for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach us on the usual social media channels and using the hashtag ShelfLifeBristol. We'd like to give a shout out to Luke, a volunteer for helping to edit this episode, and Will, who's a library assistant at Avonmouth, for his work helping to polish off all of our episodes. Also, a huge thank you to Dan Davis for the theme tune, and to Ollie, a library assistant at Knoll, for the transitional music. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of Shelf Life. Please subscribe, rate and review us wherever you listen. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at library.ideas at bristol.gov.uk. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Bristol Libraries. We hope to see you again for the next episode of Shelf Life.